0: That's IrishTimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there.
1: Hi, this is Hugh. We don't have our usual wrap of the week. Even better, we have a wrap of the year. I was joined this week by Jennifer Bray, Pat Leahy, and Jack Horgan-Jones to discuss that very subject in front of a live audience. Hello there, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linnan. Yeah. As you may have gathered, the studio has either been uh, invaded by by hundreds of other people or we're elsewhere. We're actually elsewhere. We're in Windmill Lane in Dublin this evening. It's Wednesday evening. We're recording uh, this week's uh, wrap of the news. It's a wrap of the year rather than just a wrap of the week, a wrap of the year 2023. And we're looking forward to looking through some of the incidents in the company of our invited audience. You are all very welcome. Let's start with some things. Jack, that I suppose are at the lighter end of the spectrum. Um, I know the crisis in RTE is very serious, particularly for people who work in RTE and people who are worried about the future of public service broadcasting. But for me, who doesn't spend all his time up in Leinster House, it also offered an eye-popping insight into the quality of the inquisitorial style of our public representatives. Uh, There was a particular moment, I think, when, uh, I'm not sure if he was Inspector Clouseau or Detective Columbo, uh, but Timmy Dooley, Senator Timmy Dooley, really nailed it, and I think you stood us out as one of your moments of the year.
2: Yeah, it was a great moment, and actually, this kind of has a bit of a, a feeling of an RTE event to it here, doesn't it? <laughs> I can imagine I can imagine a bundle of flip-flops over there, <laughs> balloons dropping from the ceiling.
1: I, I'm not saying who paid for the canapes. I'm not <laughs> saying a word. Barter account.
2: Barter account, yeah. Uh, no, look, the, the RTE scandal was undoubtedly one of the high points, both in terms of, of sheer colour from the year, but also in terms of, of proper hard news as well. And that's why it was such a fascinating story because it was eye-popping right down to that, that moment where actually what had been a kind of fairly pedestrian public accounts committee meeting, um, they were kind of probing this issue of of the car and you know which of the RT presenters or which of the RT contractors had cars. And uh, just as they rose for a break, uh, they'd been told, the committee had been told that uh, someone had handed back the keys to a car and Timmy Dooley said, when did that happen? And Adrian Lynch, I think it was, turned around and said, yesterday, which really brought home, I think, for a lot of people. Dum- just, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. It brought home, like, look, there, there's a limit to which this is actually the case, but certainly the, the impression that abounded out there was that Archie was... Like a rotten borough full of perks for insiders and outlandish pay and all the rest of it, and to some extent that is true. But the idea that everyone out there had a car, probably a Renault, and it was a Renault as it transpired, um, and that they were just in this kind of panic, handing back all their perks and goodies just as just as the as the as the kind of knock at the door came. Um, and but there was you, a
1: twist, of course, to Timmy Dooley getting to the bottom of who handed yeah. the car keys back because of who who it turned out to be.
2: Yeah, because it was it was Marty Marcy, uh, a, name, why is that a name a name that circulated within within seconds. Uh, on the press gallery when someone turned around and said holy Moses, which is one of, Mar- <laughs> which is one of Marty Morrissey's uh, catchphrases and then after that everyone, everyone knew who it was and it circulated for a little while before Marty Morrissey had to put up a kind of shamefaced statement saying that he'd he'd given this back um, but it was important as well because uh, Marty Morrissey was uh, and is I believe a good friend of uh, the incoming DG at the time Kevin Backhurst which made for...
1: And also there's a clear connection there
2: there's a clear connection between, Marty Timmy, Marcy, between Timmy uh, Dooley Marty and,
1: and, and Timmy Dooley. Yeah, So you know, if, if Timmy Dooley was if going if Timmy to with anybody, had known in Orti, that he was yeah. about
2: to take on <laughs> Clare royalty, he may not have he may not have asked the Colombo style question, but he did, and we got the moment. But yeah, it was look, it was a remarkable story. And also, perhaps more importantly, it was um it was a great chance for the public accounts committee, which had been kind of dormant, I think, for most of this doll. Like it used to be this brilliant kind of not to not to blow their own horn too much there. They're more than capable of that, but like used to be a kind of news agenda-setting machine, and Pack had kind of gone into abeyance, and they they hit their straps with the RTE uh, controversy. Both them and the media committee just holding this ridiculous, grueling to cover, I must say, a series of back-to-back meetings that went across a series of weeks, and all this kind of stuff just came out in real time, ranging from the the Soho House uh, membership that you know shouldn't have been all the way through to the flip flops and the balloons. And culminating in you know the, the appearance that like we didn't think that we get maybe at the start, but then became gradually you know inevitable, uh, which was the the blockbuster, the star of the show, Ryan Tuberty, down at the down at the down at the um, with Noel Kelly in tow, giving giving a performance where I think he said, uh, "I know my salary is outrageous, but that doesn't affect my soul."
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I feel exactly the same.
0: <laughs> did, but what well, wasn't the best thing, though, about the Timmy Dooley, Inspector Clouseau moment was the enormous reverse ferret that he had to do on Morning Ireland the following morning. <laughs> when he discovered when you know, what he, ha- he had done. When he discovered yeah. exactly what he had done and more to the point, how it looked in the eyes of the good people of Clare when they found that their local senator, who had been their local TD... Uh, and desires once again very much to be their local TD had actually daubed in great local hero Marty Morrissey for having a free Renault. So he had to go on Morning Ireland the following day and actually insider gossip would suggest that Timmy didn't know the answer to the question. He simply got a text from somebody in RTE saying, ask if anyone has handed over a car. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's probably Karl Crow. In my my permanent allotted role here as naive political ignoramus, can I ask a question about the committees? Because as as Jack says, Jen, the committees were back in the limelight. They were at the centre of the news. But I watched an awful lot of it, and there was a huge amount of needless repetition. There were some really stupid questions. There was some appalling showboating, and there was just some really ignorant behaviour as well. It's just like so, a podcast. Really. Just like yeah, the podcast. This is them returning to form as well. Imagine what they're <laughs> like when they're off form. <laughs> what, yeah. What was it? I mean, is that what it's like? Well, or, or did the did the spotlight make it worse?
3: I think the spotlight made it probably a bit worse, but honestly, it's consistently bad. I think covering committees is consistently crap. But um, it was interesting because Pat Rabbit had a quote before about a Rockta's report. Um, which was the Leinster House programme that RT put on. He said it was only for drunks and insomniacs, basically. And then after this, when Ryan Tuberty went down into the committee rooms, they had, I think, a ninefold increase in viewership. I think there was 9.1 million They were showing it in pubs. They were showing it in pubs. It was shown around the country. And never before has an Oroctus committee become actually box office viewing. And the funny thing was, so many people said to me afterwards, God, it got awful boring in the end. Like, once you got past Ryan Tuberty saying, I have my seven mistruths and all the big quotes, like my my salary is enormous but doesn't affect my soul. I think people were a bit like, "Wow, this is really boring." In the end, and I thought, if you think that's boring, you should have <laughs> covered <laughs> the banking <laughs> inquiry. <laughs> or something. Yeah, there was an amazing
2: a few years ago when John Delaney and that enormous controversy was unraveling. And he was going into, I, th- I think it must have been Pack or the Sport Committee at the time, and all the, all the sports hacks had to come down and cover it. And they covered it really fastidiously for the first kind of half hour, 45 minutes. And then they were turning around to all the political hacks going, is it always like this? Yeah. And then, as the fifth hour rolled into, like, they were just, they were coming apart at the seams. It was ridiculous. Like, it's could a real... It, it's could real. it be
0: better? Could it be better, Pat? There's a structural uh, difficulty that I'm not sure how to get over. And it's that if we pay it attention... Then everyone on the committee wants to get their moment in the uh-huh. spotlight, and the Tuberty Committee, if I could call it that, is a good example of it. And you know, I, I've I've seen committees do lots of good work when you know they think nobody is watching. Essentially, because if they think nobody is watching, nobody is going to bother repeating the questions that the last guy had asked. I thought the you know the 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 Tuberty Committee, it's it's principle failing was that the questioners, the TDs and senators were unable to pick up the thread of the previous questioner. They just went to their previously uh, thought out questions, whether they had been Asked before or not. Because they either wanted to get on 6 1 News or on a precisely. Trip, That's exactly
1: the what they yeah.
3: wanted. And a lot of them succeeded. And I remember Imelda Monster kind of came to the fore as one of the most aggressive people during that committee hearing. Some people loved it, some people hated it. I mean, if it got news lines, sh- as far as she was concerned, that was a win. Um, and actually, Sinn Féin put that video up on their TikTok page of her. They put it up in a, th- a three part series. And I think it got around 5 million views so far and counting. So. In
1: a, just a last, a last question on this on this particular subject, Jack, because you started it. Does any of this matter very much, I mean, in, in the broader political sense? I mean, the, the sums of money involved um, are pretty small compared to when we start talking about crises and health and housing and those kinds of things. Public service broadcasting is a subject of great interest to me, but I'm not sure once you get beyond the flip-flops and, and Ryan's backhanders whether it, it really matters that much in the greater scheme of things.
2: See, this is one of those famous Hugh Linhan questions where I know that you want to answer your own question more, more than you want me to answer it. Um, oh, well, I'm not answering it. Do, do, does it matter? I think it does. Look, okay. I mean, like, you know, obviously trust was massively depleted in RTE um, by, the, by the scandal over the summer, which stretched into the autumn. And, you know, the idea of, of public service broadcasting is something that is, is really hard to define. I think we've had a, a go at it once or twice, um, but I think that notwithstanding all the, the organizational faults that were exposed, and I'm sure that if anyone were to shine a light on any organization, including our own, they'd probably find a fair few uh, organizational faults as well. There I'd is like to
1: distance myself from that comment.
2: <laughs> Speak for yourself. I am the organizational fault. <laughs> Um, So, yeah, no, I I think public service broadcasting is really, really important. And I think that there is, it's a kind of moment of truth for it, to be honest. Uh, And the controversy has conditioned a call that has to be made in the next probably three to four months about how, you know, we, the taxpayer or the government decides to fund RT and, you know, the quality of... Uh, public service broadcasting and journalism that flows from that, I think, is, is generally of important, a matter of import to the state. So, yeah, because it, it, it put an extra prominence on those decisions and it made them politically contentious in a way that they otherwise wouldn't be. And that's that's one reason why it's important. That and the flip flops.
1: We want to move to another subject, which is one you chose, Jen. And this is a matter of the gravest constitutional importance because it touches on the relationship, the East-West relationship, as it's known, between our two great countries across the Irish Sea. A constitutional question raised by Matt and Leo's visit to the coronation.
3: Yes, indeed. So these were two stories that kind of came in relatively... Um, close proximity to each other. So the first was uh, Leo Varadkar and his partner Matt Barrett attended the coronation of King Charles in Westminster Abbey. And I actually wrote down the quotes just so I wouldn't forget them because I actually think they're very funny. Um, And there was one part where, you know, they've got the Order of ceremony and and what have you and they're talking about the Queen's Spectre and Rod and, you know, she would be touched in turn, the Queen touches them in turn and Matt Barrett put on his... Instagram account sounds like the script to a good night out. To be honest, honestly, I thought that was very funny. Um, and then there was another one about um, the clerk uh, of of the closet, and he said, "I've had this job up until my early 20s Again, you know. Um, and he divided
2: an opinion, as I recall it. I think the menu found them funny, and Pat thought they weren't very funny at that's all. That's actually true.
3: But he he put these I things. I just didn't
2: understand
0: them. <laughs>
3: Um, But he has around 350, or had around 350 Instagram followers, and he put these messages up, and our colleague, Miriam Lord, put them in her column, and the column went viral, and the British media said, red faces in Ireland, even though the only person quoted in that piece was one person, Paul Costello, and he didn't even really say that, but um, they they seized upon this anyway, and whether there were actually red faces here, I think we could have a debate about that, but he had to apologise in the end. He had to put it on his Twitter page and say...
1: And he had to shut down his account?
3: He cut loads of his followers. He had a cull, an Instagram cull. Um, so I'm not sure very many people made it in the end, but whoever passed it on to Miriam Lord certainly did not make the Instagram cull. And then the second story, which is similar in a way in that Leo Vraker himself had to apologise, was he was over in America, I think it was for the St. Patrick's Day visit. He was at an event um, and he was talking about his time... Uh, as an intern when Bill Clinton was president. And he said he was an intern at a time when some parents would have had cause for concern about what happens to interns in the White House. And he said it to this room, and they immediately kind of laughed. Like, And then they thought, oh, because the following month, Bill Clinton was due to come over to Ireland for uh, a Good, good Friday uh, events. And, and he'd, he'd been
2: with Hillary the previous day as he well. Literally an had an been with.
3: <laughs> and again, everyone kind of said, oh God, like well, Monica Lewinsky, I don't know if that's a good idea. And he had to apologise then and say, well, ill George comments. So the two of them had had cause to reflect this year.
1: I remember at the time, I think you, Pat, were looking at me as if I was a bit po-faced when I was pushing about how kind of inappropriate and just slightly off the you know. the the straight and narrow, so to speak, for want of a better phrase, um, The you know, this kind of behaviour
0: was, and whether it was indicative of anything broader, kind of a slightly juvenile approach to the job. I mean, it won't come as a surprise to you to know that I'm in favour of a juvenile approach to many things, but, um, I mean, I thought it was kind of uh, a little window into Varadkar's personality his mental makeup, his approach to things, which, I, I mean, I suppose we're all students of to a greater or lesser degree, but the, the the fact that his that he had a kind of, I suppose a sufficient lack of a filter to actually make that joke in front of an audience in Washington, which he is visiting as Taoiseach on St. Patrick's Day, I mean, I like it. <laughs> In one sense, I'm just not sure it's terribly appropriate for a Taoiseach. And he did it
3: before as well. And on his previous trip that I was over covering for a different newspaper. um, And he was, I think it was when Trump was president. And he said, oh, I intervened in a planning dispute in a wind farm. And everyone kind of, all the journalists were like, you did? (laughs) What? And then we kind of started putting it out. It was push noted across all the different outlets. And uh, that caused massive controversy. So is that
1: in a way part of the famous authenticity that, makes him a good politician in some people's eyes.
3: He does, he does say sometimes exactly, you know, he doesn't have a filter and I myself am frequently guilty of this so I sympathise on a personal level but I think when you're the Taoiseach you probably should think about things maybe before you say them, you know, when you're abroad representing Ireland the united states but yeah yeah
2: it did make for better copy than when poor poor (laughs) old went over and just got covered and had to sit in a hotel
1: room (laughs) just (laughs) just unspeakably tragic to be true. i think we can agree all journalists would be hypocritical if they were giving out about this stuff because this is exactly what what we want look pat is delighted by it all um but not as delighted i think pat by your pick for something that kept you amused all year which has been keeping us amused for for you for a decade now which is british politics where to begin. It was actually, by recent years' standards, a relatively calm year in British politics. They have the same Prime Minister at the end of the year as they had at the start.
0: And it's good to see them making progress, I suppose. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I suppose, like, possibly, you know, lots of lots of people, I, I get frustrated by the shortcomings of Irish politics and governance uh, at, at times. But at the same time, I think we should acknowledge the fact that however bad we may think things are here or however badly we may think individual issues are uh, are handled here at, at least we're not the UK where uh, I think this year provided further evidence of the dysfunctional and occasionally comically bad Uh, carrying out of their government. And, you know, in recent weeks, there's been the, um, the COVID inquiry. And of course, we might ask, where the hell is our COVID inquiry? But certainly, if our COVID inquiry revealed things that were remotely anywhere like the level of kind of circus clown idiocy that was going on at the very top of the British government uh, at the time. Then perhaps it's not surprising uh, that the inquiry has been uh, has been delayed so long. And I, I, I thought when you asked me uh, about the question earlier on in the week, I kind of I thought of a recent example to demonstrate the difference between governance in in Ireland and in for all its. Problems that we chronicle on a, on a weekly basis, but and, and the shit show in, uh, in in the UK was that. So the UK recently did their autumn statement, which is sort of a mini budget in which they uh, to answer the. I suppose this isn't funny, but you know it it, it illustrates something. I think that they announced a cut in two percent on national insurance. Contributions, which will be funded by cuts to public services after the next election, whereas we, under the uh, uh, under the baton of immensely dull Pascal and Michael McGrath, increased in the same week last week, increased our social insurance contributions, albeit marginally, but with a commitment to do it steadily over the next number of years to pay for an increased uh, retirement age.
1: And and would it be possible, in theory, for an Irish government to pull the stroke that the British government pulled last week? Or is there some constraint here to prevent that? Because oh no, it's a very am- American
0: move, isn't it? A it's the kind of thing that Congress does all the time. A government can do anything it wants, really, as long as it's within the parameters of the Constitution and it can get dull approval for it. Mm. So, you know, could... The recent budget have slashed social uh, PRSI contributions. Uh, of course, it could in twenty twenty five. It would have got well. No, because because that's
1: effectively what. Or, or sorry. Well, no. But the next if, if the, the government, next government, had British government, government had announced, you know, expenditure cuts in twenty twenty five. Here, I mean, it would ultimately be meaningless, wouldn't it? Yeah, because no government can is, is tie the hands of sure. successor. Yeah. um, And I've already heard commentators in the UK saying, you know, those cuts are never going to happen. Those cuts in expenditure.
0: Well... Well, let's see what happens, because I think what you'll find is that the Labour, that, that Labour will agree to be bound because it's terrified of being cast as spendthrift, but it will agree to be bound by the Tory spending plans. That's what it has traditionally done in the past, and that's what it has worked for it in the past. Now, it can certainly change that when it gets into power, as long as it can get uh, Parliament to uh, to approve it. But what what, what struck me about the contrast uh, about it is in this particular instance in Ireland, and not to extrapolate beyond it, but in this particular instance, it was an example of doing something which might not be popular but is the right thing to do for stability of the public finances and therefore for future governments, and a short termist, desperate approach by a British government that is on its way to defeat.
1: The insights which are offered by the UK's Code inquiry, I've mixed feelings about them, Jen. On one hand, they seem to be you know, just going for the tabloid line a lot of the time. And there's this extremely inquisitorial approach, which I'm not sure if it actually elicits information which is going to be really valuable if you're trying to face into a similar crisis in five years' time or, or whatever. But it is also fascinating and mind-boggling. I have no doubt that at the height of COVID, there were vicious WhatsApp messages pinging around between various people who are under huge pressure to make decisions in if, in terrible if circumstances. Only, if
0: only we had an expert on the Irish government's approach to COVID,
1: <laughs> someone who had
0: perhaps...
3: Yeah, I'm going to pass this before, question But before we
1: written a book... Before we the, come to the Irish expert on, uh, on, on government's COVID, I just... I still, yet again, it seems to be an awful lot of British politics this year is just about cleaning up the mess to some degree from last year and the year before, particularly in the Johnson administration, but also also the financial mess left by Liz Truss. But the, the point about Boris Johnson at one point, this came up, I think, two weeks ago, where three or four months into the inquiry, he totally misunderstood a relatively simple piece of mathematics that explains what the risks were of COVID spread at a certain point. It's the kind of thing I struggled with it, but I think I figured it out after about 60 or 120 seconds. And he was the prime minister of the bloody UK and he still didn't understand it.
3: Why are you acting so surprised? (laughs) It's Boris Johnson. (laughs) Yeah, look, I think, um, and look, we saw it in America as well. You know, some of the stuff that Trump said about injecting bleach or whatever, although he said that in front of the cameras. In fairness, Um, I think maybe if you saw an insight into, and let's just be clear about what the government are talking when they're talking about an Irish COVID inquiry, they've already said they want it to be kind of non-adversarial in that they're not seeking to lay a blame upon anybody. So they're already setting the parameters, and I don't think when we, I think when we have this inquiry, whenever it does happen it will be nothing like what you saw in the UK. Um, And I think, you know, one of the worst things, which isn't even that bad, it's not even bad at all, was Simon Harris saying, well, there's 18 uh, other COVIDs or whatever it was, 18 other coronaviruses. And it's like, well, actually, no, it's COVID 2019. But anyway, (laughs) um, you know, um, and I think that actually, if you actually got all of the text messages, maybe and all of the correspondence amongst government figures, around about throughout the pandemic it would all just be bitching about tony Holland. let's be real
2: i've seen some of these and they are okay i'm
3: gonna pass you over to jack i think he's the expert
2: here the expert Uh, by the way is the book still in
1: the shops time to give it a plug i have (laughs)
2: no idea but the audio book is still is still available online um so, sorry. What's the question? Are we going to have a COVID inquiry? And is it our going question is: use? Would
0: you like to plug your book? Would I like to plug? I would absolutely. Yeah,
1: your co-author is here this evening as well. So
0: we he really is. He w- wouldn't it. miss
2: it. He's a huge fan of the Irish Times. Hugh O'Connell of the
0: the <laughs> Irish Independent. Um, is it true that you did most of the work for the book, Jack?
2: I did most of the work, and then and then the rest of it was just fixing his mistakes. So, that's why my name went first. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, juvenile jibes aside for a moment. Anyway, um, like, I, I suppose, are, are we going to have a COVID inquiry? Yes, we are. Is it going to be anything approaching the, the kind of level of, of, you know, gooboo and madness and entertainment and, you know, eye-popping stuff that came out in the in the UK one? I think not. Uh, and I think that that's partially because they seem to have made a decision that they're not going to give whatever inquiry is set up any powers of compatibility uh, so I don't think you're going to get the kind of chapter and verse WhatsApps and text messages and emails and all the rest of it, which I do think is a shame, not just because it would make for excellent copy, but because, in, and I genuinely mean this, you know, like, this was uh, an unprecedented thing that happened, which is a word that is overused, but this was genuinely unprecedented and it involved the widespread mobilization of everything to one end, which has never happened before, certainly in this state, um, and it cost a huge amount of money. Uh, you know, the virus killed an awful lot of people, but it also, it, it disrupted daily life in a way that I think does need to be invigilated.
1: Hmm. And there are uh, big questions there remaining. Are, there, about there are big questions. And, made, and the, the yeah. big
2: question that is kind of, insofar as I can tell, that fo- has faced the, the UK COVID inquiry is, you know, did you act too late and did people die as a result of that? And I think the part of the kind of self, the, the immense sense of self-satisfaction that uh, the Irish government has about its COVID performance is the fact that they can't really be accused of that. They probably didn't act too late, and you know they probably did avoid avoidable deaths because they locked down early. But, but like, there are still questions there, about there, nursing there, there,
1: homes. There are questions about policy as, as events unrolled over the following 18 months. Yeah,
2: there's questions about how the policy was made. But then I think there is, and I'm not convinced of this, but there is a question of you know, did we overcorrect or do we need to have a proper reckoning? Rather rather than overcorrecting, do we need to have a proper reckoning with the costs of lockdown? And Mm. I know that 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 is a kind of lockdown critical point of view, but like this this did and continues to have impacts. And, you know, you can't walk around Leinster House or turn on a radio or TV without someone pointing out the impact of the COVID lockdowns on Dublin City Centre, which is just Mm. one aspect of it. Uh, Mm. And I'm not saying it was right, wrong or indifferent, because I think that ultimately the final reckoning will be that the COVID lockdowns did what they were designed to do, which was keep vulnerable people alive, which is a laudable goal in and of itself. But I think from a kind of policy point of view and chillingly, I remember one person I was texting in government about this and they said, we have to get the COVID inquiry right. Cause we have to get it right for the big one,
1: mm. which
2: suggests that COVID wasn't the big one and something bigger could be coming, coming down the tracks. And if that does happen, uh, God forbid, then, you know, I think that you have to have a properly calibrated policy response. And perhaps that does have to be more sophisticated than just stay home, save lives.
1: And there's also, I mean, without spending too much time on this subject, isn't there a kind of a big picture question instead sort of a systemic question about crisis management? That that what Ireland did was it, it played to its strengths, which is it's a small country, so created this very small decision making core which made a bunch of decisions, some of which were probably, you know, better than others. But I remember at the outset, certain people, including Finch and O'Toole were very critical of the fact that there was a whole crisis management system which had yeah, been but developed the whole structure and was, never was used. kind of
2: mad, really. Like, yeah. I mean,
1: because but why have it?
2: Well, I mean, it makes it, it makes sense to have a group of experts advising and informing policy, but like. The way, the way that we had it set up and, you know, we in the media probably have to hold our hands up about this to an extent where we put such emphasis on the Neffet meeting and hmm. the letter that went to government that it effectively collapsed the entire decision-making process and, you know, that letter would inevitably at times leak, you know, and that led to these eruptions between effort and the government, all of which you can read about in a best-selling book.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, in, in audio, anyway.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, it was a remarkable time. Um, and I hope we never go back there, and I hope I never have to write about it again, and I hope that they sign someone else to cover the COVID inquiry. Let's so I'm go, done. But there <laughs> was, to, there was sorry, actually,
3: um, there was another review which was carried out of the Public Health Response um, into the COVID inquiry, um, led by Hugh Brady, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And it's it was qui- women quietly published in September, I it think. W- it was and published
0: it in se- September, September and having been delayed for a year, but it specifically didn't consider the actions of yeah. government. It only considered the public health the public response.
3: health. And one of the recommendations, one of the main recommendations, was that there should be a statutory body, basically a statutory nephet that's always there so maybe Tony Holligan yeah. can make his great return yeah. moving
1: back to 2023 um, who had a good year Jen
3: um, I would say two politicians that I would have picked the first is Breed Smith which maybe people wouldn't expect in that she's announced that she like many TDs particularly in Fine Gael, um, that they won't be running again and I think if you look at her achievements as a politician there are many um, particularly in activism kind of left wing politics um, and this year, I think I know that in her constituency, she's working very hard to bring in kind of younger candidates up through PBP. Um, but, you know, she she also had kind of victories of her own this year. It's something that I've covered and we've talked about the podcast is the abortion review and the fact it recommended such sweeping changes and that there is literally no appetite whatsoever in the government to bring in any changes. And she introduced a private members bill and to the government's surprise, it passed um, and it, it forced them to basically put their skates on towards doing nothing but certainly towards towards uh, considering it and not just quietly putting it away and i think often politicians from the opposition particularly smaller parties like pbp they don't really get a look in and the other politician i would pick is heather humphreys which might be a surprise but i think she's she what she got in the budget um, as uh, Minister for Social Protection, will have a real impact on the next election, I think, because she got €1.2 billion Euro worth of cost of living supports. These are going to come in, I think, from this week onwards and and, and from the new year onwards, we're talking about um, double welfare payments, Christmas bonuses, lump sums, um, particularly when the economic clouds are darkening a little bit. And I think if we... And we talked about this in the podcast about spring election, and we all have different views about it, but if they were to go in spring... Theoretically, oh. um, they it's will the be going on. The first mention, yes, um, but they will be going on the back of people having extra money in their pocket, basically. And um, so she got around 25 billion for a department. And I think of all the Finnegalers, of which many have had a torrid year, and I think you're going to get into that a little bit later. Uh, uh, in, in the show, I think she probably has managed to book. So the she's trend. a very
1: under the radar, underrated kind of a politician. She's been a minister for a very long time now. She
3: has, but she's also very respected amongst Fine Gael grassroots and amongst the rural part of the party. Um, and I don't look, I don't think she's any designs on the leadership or anything like that. And I don't think she probably um, would, yeah, but I, I think. Is that
1: maybe part of her strength?
3: Possibly, yeah. Mm. And also in her department, um, she's known as someone who would get two heads together and just knock them together and be like, just do it. Um, and uh, so a lot literally of her Literally on occasion, I suspect. Literally. So a lot of her officials don't yeah, particularly that. like that. Yeah. Yeah, they'd be my two picks. Two women as well.
1: Pat, you think Mihal Martin had a good year?
3: Yeah,
0: I do. I think, you know, this time last year we were preparing for the big switcheroo in government. Mihal Martin swapping offices with Leo Varadkar. And I think there was a general expectation that, you know, and there was certainly an expectation in Fine Gael that Leo was going to step once more into the limelight and uh, and would eclipse uh, Micheál Martin as he retired to the obscurity of the Taunista's office. And there was also an expectation in parts of Fianna Fall which had been biting, or uh, how did PJ Mara put it, nibbling at their leader's bum for uh, for some years, that, you know, inevitably, as power shifted away from him when he left the Taoiseach's office, that uh, that he would be forced to name the date for his departure in advance of the next election, and one of their titans would take over. But that is not what has happened, actually. I think... I think that Michal Martin has traded on the political capital that he accumulated as uh, as Taoiseach, where the general uh, assessment of most people, polling would suggest, was that he did a good job. I think that has borne him out. I think he has found a way to be tarnished and not to be eclipsed by Varadkar. And to the kind of dismay of everybody in Fine Gael, it has turned out that Leo Vryker's second stint as Taoiseach has turned out not to be a glittering success, at least insofar as as the polls uh, Mm. would attest. And I think that at the end of this year, where many people, you know, if you go back 12 months... Many people expected that when you got to this time, this year, that Fianna Fáil would be in a much, and Micheál Martin would be in a much weaker position in comparison to their colleagues stroke rivals uh, in, in government. That hasn't turned out to be the case. Jack,
1: I have to say, all, all three of you have chosen politicians who are not exactly... Sparky, glamorous, controversial, and this can definitely be said of your choice. I can't remember my choice. Michael McGrath. I <laughs> Michael think that I think that I think that, that illustrates my point. Yeah. Um, he said Michael McGrath has had a good year. I said, really? I, I think I,
2: I said I said one line in the email which said Michael McGrath seems to be enjoying himself. Yeah. <laughs> and, so,
1: and that's it. So moving swiftly along. Yeah, no, I'm <laughs> gonna I'm
2: gonna I'm gonna do a really rock star thing up here given the setting and just change my my choice entirely because I don't want to say Michael McGrath had a good year, he had a perfectly fine year. But um I think that... Um, because I'd forgotten who I said, I was trying to think of other people uh, while I was up here. And I thought that it might be more interesting to talk about David Cullinan, um, who okay. is, is uh, the, the Sinn Féin health spokesperson, as this crowd certainly knew, Um, But has, has played out a really interesting furrow in that role. Whereby when he went in, um, you know, I think people would have kind of maybe not have hugely high expectations of him, but he's been like really quite diligent. And when you talk to people behind the scenes, like he's very involved in talking to the HSE and like you know, really kind of briefing himself to to the nth degree. And I think he's been more than more importantly than being diligent, I think he's been quite strategic in, in the points at which he attacks the government. Um, and I think that the health portfolio is perhaps less important than it was. But he's doing a really good job of kind of critiquing uh, Stephen Donnelly from there. And I think that I think that he's done a, okay. a, a pretty good job. And the other person I think about, I think the, not the other person I think about not that often, but
1: <laughs> when you're going to bed at night. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Alan
2: Dillon uh, Finnegail TV. Oh, for me. Right. yeah. Okay. Uh, I think I, not, necess- not necessarily because he's he's uh, been. Spectacular, but I think it's interesting. There's, I think there's and a whole no, kind he's been of, fairly, spe- he's been very right. good on those on those committees that we talked about earlier on because he's on both the media committee and uh, and PAC. Um, and he's been very good in terms of you know going after RT and so on. But I think it's more interesting because I think there's a there's a project Alan Dillon thing going on in Finnegan, and if you look at the, the primacy he's given, he's out a lot, he's out a lot, yeah, okay. and and it kind of makes you think about that kind of succession game within Fine Gael and who's going to be stepping up, you know, who's who's the kind of the, the next rank of coming TDs behind the Jennifer Carl McNeils and the Neil Richmonds who are now Junior ministers. So they're the two people I think had a good year. Okay, gear. can I, and Michael can I, just McGrath, say, I mean, you
1: well you've you've kind of spoiled Michael McGrath's Christmas now by, by what you did there, so apologies apologies to to him for that. Also, David Culan, first prominent Sinn Feiner to defend Leo Veradkar against no less than Elon but Musk. But that's
2: kind that's kind of part of it, I think, in some ways, that that that, you know, he hasn't perhaps, you know, been quite as manically aggressive as people might have expected him to be. And he's been more kind of tactical and strategic in terms of picking and choosing his engagements. And part of that is, you know, when I presume he does genuinely hold the view, but when it's uh, when it's politic to to defend a member of the government against the against a kind of groundless charge, you know, it, it's it it it's from an optics point of view, it's good to do that.
0: But hasn't hasn't this been one of the stories of the year? It's Sinn Fein preparing for government. Uh. I mean, it has been going on for some time. I think it was particularly evident this year. You see it in other things like um, they dumped the commitment to withdraw from PESCO, the EU's Defence Cooperation Programme. They uh, said they would consider individual projects as they came up. They junked the commitment to withdraw from Partnership for Peace. Um, the Special Criminal Court. I mean, this is you know one of the, the trends of the year that are important. It's difficult to tie it down to individual things, but this is one of the things that's are been they going doing on in our well politics Are they executing
1: that movement well, in your view?
0: I mean, I think it's a tightrope, you know. Um, on one level, they're doing it in accordance with the typically rigid message discipline that we associate with them now. So, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think it was about two years ago or so that they just, I remember pointing it out at the time, that they suddenly started every interview, every soundbite with uh, a Sinn Féin TD featured the words uh, "a Sinn Fein government would," or "were Sinn Fein in government, we would," and that. And uh, uh, but I think you know the the steady move to the centre on uh, you know issues like you know foreign policy, some of the economic stuff. I mean, like that is transparent. It's also predictable, but it is a tightrope for Sinn Féin to, to manage that while not alienating all that new support, a bunch of which is kind of anti-establishment and you know, thinks they've got a raw deal, a lot of younger voters, totally fed up with the way things are run in the country and in the market. For that change message that Sinn Fein owns and will own at the next election, and and so what they are—the tightrope that Sinn Fein are trying to walk—I think—is you know talking to one audience and saying we are the party of change, and talking to another audience and saying, but not too much
1: change. And there might be a bit of a bumpy ride along the way with that to some extent. I also asked our panelists to come up with people who they thought had had a bad or a difficult year. And there is an element, I think, of goldfish memory in, in our trade and recency recency bias, but I thought it was interesting. I mean, there were names you would have expected, like like Dara O'Brien, struggling with housing, um, like Stephen Donnelly, struggling with health. But Helen McEntee's name came up a few times. And obviously, again, when we were thinking about putting this together, we're looking back over the year, and undoubtedly one of the most significant events of the year was what happened last last Thursday in Dublin. And Jen, it really highlighted, emphasised, brought to a new level some of the issues which Helen McEntee now faces.
3: Yeah, and to be fair, you know, t- to Helen McEntee, I think, like, in her, not in her defence, it's not for me to defend her, but a sort of pros or cons of her last year as Minister for Justice. She is the Minister for Justice who has introduced the first ever statutory Um, domestic violence uh, uh, statutory agency, I think it's called Kuan, and she uh, that was announced the week before last, and it didn't really get much coverage. Um, She has made uh, domestic and gender-based violence kind of her, not her number one, well, she says it's one of her top two priorities anyway. Um, And when she said this earlier in the year, that she was focusing on this and she wanted to create more refuge spaces and she wanted to change the legislation... There was some commentary at the time from um, some journalists and some politicians saying, well, you know, Fine Party of Law and Order, we should be focusing on crime and streets, and this is all very airy-fairy. But realistically, like, the leading cause of of deaths, particularly amongst women, is in the home. Um, So I would applaud her, I'd say, for that. However, I remember earlier this year when we started seeing kind of the increase in the protests, um, and then there was that awful attack on the American tourist. In Dublin, she held a press conference in Store Street and I went along and she was there with the senior Gardaí from the district and she was asked a question, do you think Dublin is safe? And she said, yes. And a journalist asked her, would you walk around Dublin at night time? And she said, yes. Not only would I walk around Dublin at night time, but I have done. I'd walk from the three arena, you know, up to, and I genuinely thought I was having an outer body experience. (laughs) I just thought, no, like it's not true. To say that Dublin is a safe place. I mean, Dublin is a magnificent place. I mean, you know my this, city you know that this I love. personally. Yeah, yeah I, I've had yeah. my own personal experiences with um, Dublin, uh, Dublin safety in Dublin. Um, and I remember I actually let out a massive sigh when she said that at the press conference, and her advisor was turned around as fake, formerly of this parish, and I didn't realise I'd been so vocal. Um, and I think those comments that she made then are kind of coming back to haunt her in light of what happened last week, and I remember we had a podcast and we talked about this, and I said it then, I stand by it now, this will be the issue that defines her tenureship as Minister for Justice, because while I totally, completely agree that nobody who woke up last Thursday morning thought there's going to be a stabbing, and then there's going to be riots. A Lewis is going to be burnt. Buses are going to be burnt. Fire, uh, you know, uh, trucks are going to be smashed in, um, and Gardaí are going to be attacked. Nobody thought that was going to happen on Thursday. However, Issues have been highlighted consistently about the level of policing in the city centre. Um, And while you couldn't have foreseen Thursday as it played out, I think there there are genuine questions around how prepared the Gardaí were, and you can get into the ins and outs of whether they felt they could use force or not. It's part of it, but it's not the big picture. Um, and I think for that reason, in terms, especially Fine Gael's image as this party of law and order, I, for me, I think that she will end up having, in the round, probably in my view, a poli- the worst year for any politician.
1: Pat, we talk about the difficulty of the housing and health portfolios, but kind of recent history tells us that it's justice that's the graveyard of political ambition, particularly for for Fine Gael ministers.
0: Yeah, I mean, justice is a, it's a minefield, you know, I mean, you know, the great, the the great Cowanism, Brian Cowanism about health being, you know, Angola, because landmines could go off underneath you uh, at, at any moment. But actually, former ministers for health have a reasonable record of political success, you know. Uh, Michael Noonan went on to be Minister for Finance, Brendan Howland went on to lead his party, Brian Cowan went on to lead his party and beat Taoiseach Leo Varadkar went on to lead his party and beat Taoiseach, Michal Martin went on to lead his party and uh, and beat Taoiseach whereas Stephen Donnelly, no (laughs) (laughs) That's a prediction tonight, is it? Stephen Donnelly won't be Taoiseach Whereas (laughs) uh, You know how reluctant I am to make predictions, but I I feel confident in making that one but justice has proved to be more of a graveyard for uh, political careers. And that's because, I suppose, it's not so much a landmine going off uh, underneath you, it's you being, you know, shot in the face by a howitzer, you know, uh, that stuff happens, stuff happens on the streets, and you are immediately responsible, or you bear political responsibility for it. And I kind of think that, the events of last Thursday um, have changed our politics in in, in a way. I think that they're, you know, one of the things that we have to learn to do in our job is to figure out what's significant and what isn't at the, uh, uh, you know, at the end of the week or at the end of the year. Of course, you know, there's a story on the front page of the paper every day, but some stories are clearly more important than others. And we're getting to the time of the year when we have to write our reviews of the year. And it's a useful mental exercise, I think, over the course of the year when you're covering a story. And actually, the RTE story is, is, is one of those. You know, Was it really that important at the end of the day? Is the future of RTE important? Yes. Is Ryan Tuberty's pay all that important at the end of the day? You know, uh, uh, I wonder, will when we get to the end of the year, will we remember that as, you know, a really significant story on which substantial things in our politics turned? I'm not sure. Will this, what happened last Thursday, be something that will be significant into the future in our politics? I'm pretty sure it will be. And I think it has changed the political debate, and reordered the, uh, reordered the political priorities as we head into the next election. And I think that reordering will endure. Jack, do you agree with that? And if so, what does it mean?
1: I know you were up observing Drew Harris before the, before the committee this afternoon. Do you get a sense in the in the political world? Because you hear these things after shocking events. You sometimes hear people say, the world has changed. Uh, and very often when people say that, actually the world hasn't changed, but sometimes it has.
2: The short answer is yes. I think that um, Helen McEntee is, is quite unlucky in some ways because the the riot story and what happened last Thursday is, you know, in some ways the standard bearer for a lot of other things um, that are live issues within Irish politics and had been kind of middle order uh policy problems for the government that occasionally kind of rose to the level of their their traditionally two largest policy problems, which are health and housing. Health and housing is going to decide the next election, health and housing decided the last one, and so on and so forth. But this now has become, I think, this kind of multi-headed hydra whereby migration is getting thrown in, street crime in Dublin is getting thrown in, uh, the, the rise of the far right, you know, how you kind of police or moderate... Uh, online content, all these kind of things come to a head within uh, the riot story. And she is the kind of political figure responsible for that. Um, and I was working last weekend, so covering the story relatively closely, and several people across government said to me that they now believe that it is actually, it's, it's three things, it's, it's law and order, it's health and it's housing. And a couple of them said that it actually far eclipses health as a kind of volatile or dangerous topic for the government. The idea that, you know, uh, the government or the state writ large for which the government is politically responsible is unable to guarantee uh, or has a credibility issue around its guarantee of uh, law and order on the streets is an incredibly potent and, and, and challenging um you know, thing for 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 the government, and I think that's why this is such a peculiar political challenge because it's kind of evolved in in a in a way that's unlike normal political controversies. You know, it hasn't actually there hasn't been too many dimensions to it. It hasn't you know there hasn't been a day two story, a day three story. It's just the day one story over and over again. And I think what what is different about this as well is that the main determining factor of whether this becomes merely uh, a giant challenge that they have to face mm. or something that I think could actually threaten the stability of the coalition is what happens outside Leinster House and if there is another large-scale um, disturbance. Because then you go from a situation whereby there's plenty of criticism of the of the Garda reaction and the strategy and policing policy in general, um, you know, all of which has been deployed in the aftermath of this of, of this riot. And I think that the government has kind of rolled of the punches to a degree, it certainly not sunk them. But like if something else happened again, it would undermine the credibility of the government writ large in some ways because of that point that I made about, you know, if you're not able to guarantee law and order on the streets, then, uh, then, then what are you there for? It's kind of like not being able to pass a budget in some ways. So that's why I think this is such a, a strange and peculiar challenge and one that I think potentially will go on and on and on because what we've seen about these sporadic or spontaneous events, none of which reached the level of last week, but is that they're, they're kind of hard to predict? I mean, the 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 protests outside the doll on the first day back of term, you know, I I certainly wasn't expecting it, and I don't think anyone else was either. And then there's been several protests since where we've gone all guns blazing and got got barriers can up I and just nothing ask has you happened.
1: though? But you were you? I mean, were you there at the time? of the at the, at the, at the protest outside the doll?
2: Yes, reporting from the front the, line the Garda- entirely by accident. If the guardy
1: Garda- had not had adopted a different approach from what is currently called the softly softly approach and I'd just gone out and stuck 50 people in the back of a van and taken them off uh, to the Bridewell. Would I, I, that have be been the end yeah. of it?
2: I, I, don't, I don't know, to be honest. Like, And I mean, as political reporters, we, we always stray into other people's lanes. But like, I'm certainly not a, a policing expert. But mm. it, does, it does strike me that there is a, there is a logic to, to the, the Garda response, even though it has been much maligned over the last week, That, you know, if you look at how far-right groups operate and how the internet works, you know, giving, you know, explosive imagery and something that kind of validates this sense that, you know, the the state is is going to crush you because, you know, it's evil. You know, that that would seem like a sensible approach in some ways, but then you get something like last week, and it's a counterfactual. We wouldn't know.
0: It's quite precarious for Helen McEntee now, I think. I mean, there is no demand from within government for her head because for... You know, reasons it's not terribly hard to fathom. Ministers are generally not in favour of ministers having to resign because they can't do their jobs properly, or whatever. But I think if something happened on the streets, something else substantial, there would be very significant political fallout for Helen McEntee, up to and including the level of terminality uh, about uh, about that um and and i think the guards are the, the, much the same is the case i think for the garda commissioner and i think you can you can see that in the reaction you know, the streets are flooded with guards they will remain so the barriers are all up around Leinster House to prevent anything happening there but it is quite precarious and the ball much as we may not like it the ball is kind of in the court of the far right guys now and the guards I'm pretty sure and and the entire security apparatus are trying to second guess their next move and that is really not a place that you want to be in there is a broader question here it is
1: the question of and we actually recorded a podcast on this subject this morning and it's currently available Which is about whether, as in pretty much every other Western European country, um, questions around immigration uh, are going to become a live political issue in electoral politics in Ireland, which they haven't been up to now. There's going to be European elections next year, among other lots of other elections, and I think it's widely predicted that across Europe, far-right parties are going to make significant gains. Any sign of that happening in Ireland? No. I don't know who wants no. to take that.
3: Not yet. I mean, the far right have not managed to solidify into any kind of meaningful unit. I mean, just look at the National Party. You know, they have completely splintered, and we know all the row about 400 grand worth of gold found, and uh, apparently some of that still has not been claimed. So m- there's to more be to come honest, on we, this.
0: We missed a trick on that earlier in the in in the podcast. That was the best story of the Sorry, year. Yeah,
3: but I, but if you look at it, that take that as an example. The far right have not managed to kind of come in behind one group en masse. And even if you look at the at what happened last Thursday, they were people who came from all different parts of the country. You're talking about Navin, Longford, Waterford, Dunleary. Um, like the, the, the idea that this is some kind of north inner city thing, I think has been debunked, really, um, that, that it kind of swelled up from uh, issues there. Um, so far, we haven't seen that kind of movement or gathering amongst the far left. I do believe that if a credible candidate came forward um, who... A certain cage fighter? No, absolutely not. Well, look, I mean, people talk about him running for election, okay? Like Conor McGregor running, running for election. It could happen, all right? But I really do genuinely believe that most Irish people have looked at what he's tweeted in the last few days and been genuinely appalled and looked at it and seen it for what it is. Um, now, look, at, not everybody will agree with me, but...
2: I suppose the, the point is that there's a constituency that won't. And that there will always there, be a constituency
3: that won't, and that's fine. And
2: well, I, I, th- I think that, you know, part of the, the issue of kind of this particular brand of radical politics and, and Irish national politics or representative politics is that there hasn't been a, a democratic expression for this. And, you know, people have rightly said that, you know, the far right doesn't elect people in Ireland and it doesn't and it hasn't. And I predict that it won't but i think that sometimes that can be quite comforting particularly to the political classes you know this idea that you know just because there isn't a far right party or an anti immigrant party in the doll that you know this ha- this hasn't been expressed within irish politics i think that is in it is in the process of expressing itself
3: Oh, for within, sure. within
2: Irish yeah. politics, and I think that that manifests itself in lots of different ways. I think that some, some of the independents kind of court a uh, you know migration concerned or migration sceptical vote. I think that I think as we said earlier on, Sinn Féin will kind of struggle to speak to that part of of its base that is that is concerned about migration issues. But like, it's it's absolutely I think in the mainstream now. I think it is a mainstream political opinion to have concerns about migration. And I think that the bigger parties are going to have to figure out how to accommodate that while also being kind of, you know, mainstream parties that keep up with our international obligations and all the rest of it.
0: Migration is now an issue in Irish politics. This, sh- this shouldn't surprise us massively. It is a huge issue in almost every European country. In very many of them, it is the number one issue, number one political issue. And, uh, and it will be... I think, an issue in our politics as we go forward to the next election. The question for our participants in Irish politics, and I guess for those of us who cover it, is how we wish to treat it. I mean, the question of uh, accommodation centres for migrants, most of them people here seeking international protection, has been raised in the doll for the last several weeks by the, by the independents. Government TDs tend to raise it privately, but it is an issue and it is something that the government will have to uh, address and all of us will have to address. It's now front and centre in politics here.
1: Okay, on that serious note, just wrapping up here now, and I was thinking about looking back at this year, I kept thinking of it as a prelude to next year, which is this rather extraordinary year of elections, not just those European Parliament elections. I have this fever dream of an Irish general election, a UK general election, and the American presidential election all happening within a working week of each other, and what that's going to do to all our lives, both for us personally and then for the, for, for the consequences of it. But that's a story for another year. I want to, I want to thank Pat. Jack and Jen. Also want to thank our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Special thanks to Tanya Meehan uh, and Aileen Brilly from our marketing department who set up this fantastic venue for us this evening. It's great. We are the Irish Times Inside Politics team. Uh, We'll be back with you very soon. But until then, thank you very much for attending and listening.